All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the CNS Journal Club podcast. I'll be doing the article for the April 2021 Neurosurgery Journal. Uh, we'll be highlighting uh, an article with the title, Long-Term Outcomes of Intraarterial Chemotherapy for Progressive or Unresectable Pilocytic Astrocytomas, which is a nice case study that's done from uh, OHSU. Uh, at this time, I'll happily uh, ask the panelists to introduce themselves, starting off with our, our group from OHSU. I'm Dr. Ed Newell in, in neurology and neurosurgery at the Oregon Health Sciences University, and uh, I'm the head of the blood-brain barrier program. Thank you. This is Dr. Kutuvayulich. Uh, I'm uh, from OHSU again. Uh, an International uh, Neuroradiology Fellowship, um, and I have uh, fellowship trainings on skull-based uh, neurosurgery and also neuro-oncology. Appreciate it. And I'm Prakash Ambadi, a neuro-oncologist and associate professor in neurology at Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon. Thank you. It's really nice to have you guys. And as a guest faculty today, uh, we have a guest from Memphis. Introduce yourself. Yes, my name is Paul Klimo, University of Tennessee, Sims Murphy, Memphis, Tennessee. It's a pleasure to have you. And as always, we have our CNS resident uh, fellow and uh, by all means, introduce yourself. This is uh, Rimmel Dosani, endovascular fellow at the University at Buffalo, New York. That's wonderful. So, uh, you know, we have a pretty uh, big group. It's quite a unique uh, session today. So I'm very happy to do this. And uh, we'll start off uh, with Dr. Ulrich. We'll give us a brief overview of the article. So uh, our article is uh, called Long-Term Outcomes of Intra-Arterial Chemotherapy for uh, Progressive or Unresectable Pilocytic Astrocytomas. This is a case studies of uh, 12 patients uh, that uh, we have cared for in OHSU. Uh, over the uh, span of almost 20 years. So um, this is a very rare uh, problem uh, for the patients to have the progressive or the unresectable pilocytic astrocytomas. Um, uh, for that reason, this is, uh, and also treating them intra-arterial uh, with intra-arterial chemotherapy is also a very rare thing to do. So uh, for that reason, our study is basically spanning over uh, 20 years or so. Uh, so, um, I would like to speak a little bit more about the uh, intra-arterial chemotherapies and the uh, blood-brain barrier disruptions uh, that uh, Dr. Newell, who is the senior author on this paper, has uh, tremendous uh, experience on. Um, but basically, uh, let's talk about this uh, paper itself a little bit. Uh, this is a, a paper uh, where the patients were treated with intra-arterial chemotherapy, so uh, none of them uh, really received uh, blood-brain barrier uh, destructions. Uh, and at the time when they were getting treated endovascularly, they were getting uh, three vessel territories usually uh, at a time. Uh, so for the results, uh, this uh, new uh, novel technique of intra-arterial chemotherapy uh, application, one of the big concerns is uh, what are the safety uh, profile of these patients is um, uh, basically we want to evaluate that on these uh, subset of the patients with the pilocytic astrocytomas, where uh, overall this 12 patients has uh, almost uh, around 120 uh, treatment sessions uh, procedures. Uh, with over 250 arteries were treated, 
And uh, over uh, all of these procedures, there were just uh, three minor complications associated to the procedure. So we, uh, uh, by, by this paper, we can say that uh, intraarterial chemotherapy is uh, overall very safe procedure uh, to proceed with the uh, patients in this uh, subset uh, of the population. Um, out of those three uh, minor complications, one of them was the uh, groin-related complication, cellulitis, uh, and one of the minor complications was the asymptomatic uh, stroke that was found on a, a follow-up uh, imaging, follow-up MRI imaging. Um, overall, we reported the uh, pro progression-free survival and the median overall survivals, but uh, reading these numbers can be a little bit challenging because uh, half of these patients had previous chemotherapy, uh, one of them had uh, previous radiation therapy, uh, interestingly, cobalt uh, radiation therapy a long time ago. Uh, and the other uh, five patients uh, did not uh, have any uh, adjuvant therapies prior to the intraarterial chemotherapy. Uh, either uh, unresectable, uh, they, they got biopsies or uh, uh, were not uh, partially resected, basically. Um, so these are the general things that I would like to mention. I would like to uh, talk more about the uh, uh, questions and the uh, other things. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. It was very helpful. Um, by all means, you know we can open it up. And uh, Dr. Klima, if you have any questions for our guests, um, we can proceed. Yes, um, I thought this was a very interesting paper, an interesting but I think somewhat old topic. If uh, I think when I was a resident, I first heard of intraarterial chemotherapy, I think was for GBM patients. So I, I think it's a, it's a concept that has been around for a while, I'll just say. I'm not exactly sure how, how long it's been, but this is the first time I've heard of it being applied to pilocytics or, or pediatric tumors. Um, I had a few questions. Um, in the paper, you guys mentioned the age at diagnosis, um, but what was the kind of the average age or the time interval between diagnosis of their tumor and the intra-arterial chemo treatment? Like, what was that kind of time lag? Uh, that's an excellent question. And uh, we actually note that in table one, where the first column actually goes over the age of diagnosis, and then subsequently we have age of treatment. So now that range, uh, as uh, Dr. Yula just mentioned, there was one patient who progressed really fast uh, after the surgery, and then another patient who had multiple treatments, uh, and actually about 40 years before they actually had intraarterial chemotherapy. So we actually listed the time from initial diagnosis and um, time of treatment rather than actually providing a median because of this one patient, our median would be extended or screwed quite significantly. So excluding that one outlier average time interval between diagnosis and treatment would be roughly what? Uh, about one year. A year, okay. Um, my next question, uh, and you, you touched about on this in the intro, talks, it, it deals with what prior treatments have already been done. Um, in our experience over at St. Jude, pilocytics 
if possible, are a surgical disease. And uh, unless it comes back or surgery is not really an option, then we think about all the different options, chemo, standard chemo, targeted therapy, uh, radio surgery, even fractionated therapy. Um, in this group of 12 patients, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, so five of them only had chemotherapy before their intraarterial chemo, is that correct? That is correct. And then only one patient had radiation therapy before? Uh, that is correct, but that is actually uh, in, included in that five patients. And then there were six patients, so about half of your patients, it was mentioned uh, that it, they had progression after, it was like the first adjuvant therapy with progression. So what did they have before? Was it just a biopsy and then observation? Was it a partial resection and then observation? So, you know, the table one is actually the best table to reference to. So it gives whether they got biopsies STR or subtotal resections, uh, and obviously, you know, we don't, we did not have anybody with uh, a gross total resection. There was one patient with an optic uh, nerve tumor that refused uh, biopsy. He was an adult, 30-year-old patient, um, but radiographically, it was consistent with uh, pilocytic astrocytoma. Um, the the patients who had uh, biopsy only had evidence of radiographic progression before um, IA therapy was offered. Uh, and all of them had documented progression after prior therapies, if they had got I, uh, IV therapy or radi uh, radiation. Okay. <clears throat> because it would seem to me, and it, I think you guys mentioned this in your paper, that these were all deemed inoperable tumors. And I would agree that virtually all, you can argue, optic pathway gliomas are inoperable. They're not really a surgical disease, but the uh, you know other pilocytic certainly are. And that intraarterial chemo is, and I th again, I think you mentioned in your paper that it was really kind of the last option. This was kind of a last, last tier effort to try and halt the, the progression of tumor, which brings me up to my next question. In the you guys presented, I think, three case illustrations, two of which were non-optic pathway tumors. At least in my opinion, from the limited images that you guys provided, those look like surgically resectable tumors. No, I, I uh, agree that pilocytic astrocytomas are surgical tumors. So if surgery is possible, we should absolutely go with surgery and with the goal of post-total resection and long-term um, disease-free or progression-free survival. Having said that, all these cases uh, were discussed in our interdisciplinary tumor board, and they also had independent uh, visits with our neurosurgeons and our radiation oncologists as well. And, uh, you know, as, as Dr. Yulich had mentioned, these uh, patients were treated over 20 years. So, you know, the surgical techniques have certainly improved, especially with mapping and, uh, you know, tractography being much better. Uh, we do do better surgeries, uh, but the goal of this paper was to identify 
those long-term survivors where we got response and that response was durable. Okay. My final question is, how do you see this um, treatment option being applied to kids, in particular young kids? Uh, you know, half a year, I think about half, maybe a little bit more than half your patient population were the optic pathway gliomas, and these are typically found in, in young kids. So putting them through uh, an angio in a young kid in and of itself, I think is probably technically challenging and probably more so than in an older kid or certainly in an adult. So if you're putting a young kid through 10, 12 general anesthesias, femoral artery access, catheter injections, how, how feasible do you guys feel that is in young kids with Actually, let me no. uh, I, I definitely agree with uh, Dr. Klima on the uh, surgical side too. As a surgeon, I, I agree that some of those tumors are uh, uh, resectable, especially in this time of uh, neurosurgery. We can definitely go for the resection and those kind of things uh, for them. Uh, as our surgical skills improve, our endovascular skills also improve. So uh, at this point, uh, young kid uh, the, uh, angiography is uh, getting every day with the new uh, instruments and the technology getting better and better. Actually, there is a good uh, uh, amount of data for the retinoblastoma treatment with the intraarterial, uh, ophthalmic artery, intraarterial injections. So uh, of course, it is something that uh, we are uh, much more careful. Uh, we are using different instruments than the adult population, uh, but it is definitely uh, feasible. We are just uh, being a little bit more cautious and um, we are using smaller uh, catheter diameters. Sometimes if the patient is less than one year uh, of age, uh, we are using micro catheters and we are not even using any uh, uh, large, like four French uh, catheters or anything like that. So, um, uh, and multiple accesses uh, from the uh, femoral artery side is, is uh, not uh, a problem uh, on the kids because this is something that we are doing for artery in small formations uh, commonly. Uh, another thing that I would mention uh, uh, during this study, uh, none of these patients received uh, this procedure through the trans uh, radial approach. But nowadays, we are doing more and more uh, diagnostic angiographies or uh, interventions with stroke interventions and other procedures through the transradial approach. And I think it is going to be something in the future that we are going to be uh, performing this procedure from the transradial approach. I'd like to add one uh, a key point, and that is uh, we had presented the overall uh, procedure-related toxicity at the SNOW meeting, and it consistently is below uh, 3%. Uh, that includes minor and major complication was less than 1%. Uh, similarly, we had also pub, uh, presented our uh, IABBBD results in patients with uh, embryonal and germ cell tumors uh, as a phase one trial. And uh, our, our procedure-related toxicity, even after multiple therapy, uh, remain very low. Thank you uh, very much to all the authors. Very thought-provoking article. I appreciate the, uh, the time and the opportunity to uh, participate in this podcast. Though Those are all my questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Klimo. At this time, uh, Dr. Dasani, if you have any questions, um, you can please ask.
Thank you, uh, Dr. Vega. I'd like to uh, thank all the authors and congratulate them on uh, presenting their results um, for intraarterial chemotherapy for these unresectable and difficult pilocytic uh, astrocytomas. Uh, from an endovascular perspective, uh, it would be good if you could shed some light on how do you select which vessels to uh, inject. For example, if the tumor is in the brainstem, do you prefer to inject through the posterior circulation or do you also inject chemotherapy through the anterior circulation via the internal carotid artery? So uh, I would like to answer this a little bit broadly if it's possible, because I would like to bring the discussion to a little bit uh, in a different way with this question, because it's a very important question. Um, so which vessels to inject and uh, some of the, some groups that are uh, doing these uh, therapies are more uh, going into the selective microcatheter injection of the specific vessels that supplying the tumors and those kind of things. So. The most important thing in here, I think, plays role, which vessel you are going to inject, what pathology you are treating for, and what are you trying to achieve. Uh, in this paper, uh, we were trying to treat uh, a disease uh, called pilocytic astrocytoma, which is mostly circumscribed disease. Uh, so it should uh, basically stay in the uh, general border of uh, where it is. For that reason, we were not really using blood-brain barrier disruptions with this therapy. Uh, and we are trying to uh, treat the vessel territory that is affected. The challenge comes from optic gliomas or the cervical spine uh, uh, tumors that, as you know, can get uh, blood supply from uh, any circulation uh, territory through the posterior communicating arteries. Or the, uh, so every uh, patient is kind of unique in this uh, treatment. So mostly you are treating all three vessel distribution uh, because uh, if you are talking about an hypothalamic optic glioma, it is going to get blood supply from any of the uh, territories that's going to be uh, going to the brain with the left, right ICA and the uh, vertebral arteries. But uh, if you are uh, talking about a different pathology like uh, glioblastomas and the blood-brain barrier disruption, that's uh, a little bit different discussion because you are trying to treat the whole brain uh, because of the blood-brain barrier, uh, the tumor cells that's hiding behind the blood-brain barrier. So uh, that's a different uh, territorial uh, therapy too. But on this paper, most of the patients received three vessel uh, distribution because of the location of the tumor. Uh, the uh, patient, I think with the cervical spine lesion, received just the vertebral artery injections. Yeah. But that's also a decision that you make seeing the diagnostic angiography. Uh, you, you basically get the... Uh, of the brain where, where the tumor is getting supplied from, and then you make the decision. Thank you for, you explained that uh, very beautifully. Thank you for clarifying that point. Uh, we have uh, experience uh, in Buffalo with uh, injecting intraarterial verapamil for symptomatic vasospasm for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. And occasionally those patients, uh, we do them under moderate sedation uh, and they complain of discomfort and occasionally will have seizures. Uh, with injection of intraarterial verapamil. So when you do these intraarterial chemotherapy uh, injections, uh, these can be toxic agents. Uh, some of these procedures were performed under moderate sedation. So do these patients have similar uh, side effects? So what kind of side effects or complaints do the patients have during the procedure? The intraarterial procedure itself, uh, you know, has not uh, translated to higher uh, risk of seizures, at least in our experience. Having said that, when we use intraarterial chemotherapy with osmotic blood-brain barrier disruption 
and methotrexate, especially in the lymphoma patients. Uh, methotrexate is known to be uh, irritant to the cortex, and we do see seizures, uh, but these are self-contained seizures, and uh, are, you know, patients are under general anesthesia in those, uh, in, un, under those circumstances. Uh, we do see slightly higher risks of seizures uh, when we use carboplatin compared to non-carboplatin therapies. But overall, uh, we give a dose of Keppra before they go in, um, pre-medicate them adequately, and uh, we sh usually we don't have seizures uh, as a major concern. So let me reiterate that because that's a, a different conversation, though. Uh, it is not with the intraarterial chemotherapy. With the intraarterial chemotherapy, there is no significant increase in the seizures that we have seen. That is when you are breaking the blood-brain barrier and then treating the uh, with the intraarterial chemotherapy. Those patients may have actually increased swelling and also may have increased uh, post-procedural seizures too. But all of those patients with blood-brain barrier disruptions goes under general anesthesia. Uh, these patients, depending on the age, they go under general anesthesia or they can uh, they can be uh, off the general like moderate sedation procedures. So, with the intraarterial chemotherapy, we did not really see any increased uh, uh, seizures. Uh, that I have to say, especially on this paper too. You have mentioned the uh, injection of intraarterial chemotherapy uh, as uh, perhaps an adjunct or separate technique as compared to the blood-brain disruptions technique. Uh, would you mind uh, just taking a minute to highlight the differences? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, that's uh, because people, uh, most of the neurosurgery, neurointerventional and neuro-oncology community is a little bit uh, especially neurosurgery and the neurointerventional community is a little bit not understanding this well. Uh, Neuro-oncologists are very well uh, understanding this. So uh, the two main uh, different techniques is intraarterial chemotherapy, intraarterial injection of the chemotherapeutical drug, or intraarterial injection of the chemotherapeutical drug after the blood-brain barrier disruption with either osmotic uh, ways or other uh, means. So uh, the intraarterial injection of the chemotherapeutical drug, we know that from the uh, animal studies that increases the uh, drug concentration in the brain and in the tumor. Uh, but when you break the blood-brain barrier uh, and combine it with the intraarterial chemotherapy, there is a hundredfold increase in the chemotherapeutical in the, in the uh, uh, brain, uh, brain around the tumor too. So, um, Basically, those are the two big differences. Like either you inject the chemotherapy with intraarterial route, like the uh, diagnostic uh, angiography, uh, and injecting the uh, verapamil, as you were saying, or you can break the blood-brain barrier and then inject the uh, chemotherapy, which is a little bit more, a, a little bit more intense uh, uh, therapy. And you do that for different reasons, basically. What I would say. Thank you. In this. In this case, I'd just like to add, in this case, pilocytics, uh, they are enhancing tumors, and we presume that the blood-brain barrier was already disrupted, and as Dr. Yulich mentioned, they seem to be well circumscribed, unlike lymphomas or uh, other gliomas. My one uh, final question, uh, if you could highlight the advantages of intraarterial chemotherapy over conventional intravenous uh, uh, chemotherapy, uh, in your observation and uh, experience and reading on this subject, uh, how much advantage with respect to drug delivery uh, would a patient receive from an intraarterial route as compared to the intravenous route? 
I can try and answer, and Dr. Newell, uh, you have done a lot of the work, preclinical work on this. Uh, so Dr. Newell and Dr. Muldoon's studies in animals uh, suggest that just by giving it intraarterially, we are increasing the drug concentration in the brain by about tenfold uh, compared to IV. And uh, by using osmotic blood-brain barrier, it can range up to 100 times, uh, depending on whether you take it intratumorally versus brain around the tumor. So that does increase the drug delivery uh, question that we are always chasing. Uh, now, obviously, novel therapies and newer therapies needs further evaluation. Uh, but in chemosensitive tumors like lymphomas and embryonal tumors and germ cell tumors, we see the best response, uh, even in patients who have failed traditional IV therapy, and just like a few cases uh, in this paper. Uh, whereas in traditionally chemo-resistant tumors like glioblastomas, the advantage uh, that we have by just opening the barrier may not be as good until we evaluate newer agents. Dr. Snowell, do you have any comments on this? So we have stopped doing glioblastoma about 20 years ago uh, because it, it's a whole brain disease and we, we, we can get drugs in, but th their efficacy uh, is palliative at best. So we, we basically, for blood-brain barrier disruption, go for disseminated tumors where we can treat, treat the whole brain. Lymphoma is an example. Even tumors that failed bone marrow transplant, like with ATRT, failed everything. In, in chemotherapy, multiple bone marrow transplants, and we, we've taken them on. And with the hundredfold increase in delivery, we, we published in pediatric weather cancer a patient like that who's alive 20 years later. So we're going after a chemosensitive tumor where we, we, we know from the laboratory that they're not going to injure the normal brain. And we have chemo protection uh, with, with thiols to make sure there's no urotoxicity. Uh, and in, in this series of about 5,000 procedures, uh, what, what Kulik showed is a remarkable amount of safety. Uh, there's always this concern about uh you know, neurotoxicity, neurocognitive decline, and you know, since uh, we are in the same realm, uh, I'd like to highlight a paper from uh, Dr. Newell's group uh, in neurosurgery in 2000, where McAllister et al. is the first author. Uh, they looked at long-term outcomes, neurocognitive outcomes in patients who received osmotic blood-brain barrier disruption uh, without any radiation. And uh, over a span of 20 years, uh, actually a range of up to 20 years, they followed these patients with a battery of neurocognitive uh, assessments, and they found that on, on most domains, patients' neurocognitive uh, capabilities actually improved compared to patients who receive radiation. So the, the, the neurocognitive outcomes uh, are quite good uh, after blood-brain barrier disruption, is what I was trying to say. And we have 30-year survivors. Well. Thank you so much, you know, for this extremely useful talk. And uh, there was a lot of insight into this topic. And I know there's a lot of people doing research, um, uh, taking this to another level, actually, uh, from one of my old groups, but I won't, you know, for another topic another day. Uh, that being said, um, 
you know, thank you for the discussions and I want to take the time to appreciate uh, Dr. Newell, Dr. Ulick, and Dr. Mbadi from uh, OHSU, and of course our special guest, Dr. Klimo from Memphis, and Dr. Dasani. And so for um, all of our listeners, I would like you uh, to encourage you to go through and obtain our one unit of uh, CME credit um, uh, through the website, and of course check for more upcoming podcasts uh, that we do every month. So thank you again uh, for everybody's time, and this concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast for April.